When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Worst Year Ever, a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome to the worst year ever. We'll get through together or not. Everything is so dumb, 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 dumb. Welcome back to the worst year ever, the most aptly named podcast as we all sit in quarantine watching the economy spiral around the drain and our government openly discuss how many of us dying is worth uh, maintaining economic productivity. It's a cool year and a good one. And I'm Robert Evans. uh, And my co-hosts are, of course, Katie Stoll, feeling good, feeling fine. And Cody Johnston. And same. And uh, to help us through this period of incipient madness, uh, we have a special guest on the podcast today, uh, a veteran activist and community organizer, Mr. Scott Crow. Scott, how are you doing today? I'm good. Um, un- under house arrest, feeling great. It's not house arrest. <laughs> it's similar. <laughs> <laughs> but we don't yeah, have those monitors. Just minus, minus the ankle monitor, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Now, uh, Scott, you were one of the founders of an organization uh, called the Common Ground Collective, uh, and I wonder if you would kind of, uh, and this was this was a, a, a mutual aid organization with the motto "Solidarity, not charity." Uh, that opened up in New Orleans in the immediate wake of Hurricane Katrina, when the city was still very much a disaster area, and it was filled with armed Blackwater guards and National Guardsmen and uh, uh, very restrained and responsible police officers who did not <laughs> exercise their power in unreason. And anyway, and y'all provided a variety of really incredible services, um, including like medical care, home visits for people, the distribution of food, a whole bunch of stuff. And I wondered if you'd talk uh, you know, th- the focus of this episode is to kind of provide a guide for people to creating their own uh, mutual aid and solidarity networks. You know, if you live in an area where there's nothing, um, nothing set up yet for you to uh, to help your community, to help the people around you, um, you're someone who has some experience starting organizations. And uh, so we want to pick your brain on that. But I think first we want to go over some history and talk about the Common Ground Clinic. So I wonder if you kind of might lead us in there about how that started, how that got formed initially. Well, it starts way back in the 1800s. <laughs> no, actually, I no, want to back up for one um, because I was in D.C. Yeah. on September 11th, uh, 2001. Wow. And I that and I, we were we were gathering a bunch of anarchists because we were going to bring 200,000 people to the city over the next five days to begin organizing. And um so we arrived early to get to get ready for things. And then, of course, everything happened. And what I saw there was an abysmal response from 
activist communities and um, the people, even anarchists around me. And that really gave me a question of like, what would we want to do if, if the state loses power truly? Um, and so I had time to stew on that for the next four years. And then we had an, uh, the major, major disaster of Katrina happen. Uh, the Hurricane Katrina came ashore in uh, late August and through September of, of 2005. And so by that time, I'd already been thinking about what would we do? What do we want to do as anarchists? What do we want to do that's liberatory? What do we want to do as people who care about other people who are, are not around us? And so when when I went, when I rushed headlong into the to the disaster, the second day after the disaster, it was really in a in a uh, without any large plans yet, except for to find a friend of ours and try to bring him back. And is a, a man named Robert King, who had been a lifelong political prisoner, had done 32 years in solitary confinement. He had been free, but he'd been living in New Orleans. So we wanted to go find him. And what I saw there was I saw that the state had lost power, but I also saw that people were dying left and right. And they needed mm -hmm. that more than just our friend King. They needed, they needed, they needed everything because but like communities like New Orleans and the Gulf Coast, they, you know, they they are also poor communities often. And they were already under the long histories of disasters before this storm had come in and, and the response to the storm. And so I started to say, like, we need to do this things. We need to do two things. Dual power. We need to create and build infrastructure, healthcare, education, uh, basic things for civil society, but at the same time resist oppression that was happening to the communities there. So the police were out of control, as you mentioned, and that's really true, true. This is far before Blackwater even arrived. And so were the white, you know, the white minority of the population there. And they formed these white militias in, in two neighborhoods, one in the Algiers Point neighborhood, which has literally maybe 100 white people and a, and a population of like 30,000. And there are a few blocks and they armed themselves and then had the most hateful signs up and they started doing patrols. And then on the other uh, the other side was uh, on, the, on the French Quarter, they had another white militia there. And so we started out doing resistance work, just immediate disaster things, trying to do search and rescue, trying to do these things. But I was thinking this whole time, what would what would people what would others have done in these situations? So I looked to the Spanish anarchists in the 30s because I considered disasters to be ecological, economical, political, and war. Those are all forms of disaster. You can call them crisis, you can call them whatever, it doesn't matter, but they're disasters to, to the people in them and to the, the environments. And so I was asking myself, what, what did the Spanish anarchists do in the 30s when, when fascism really kicked in? And I asked myself, like, well, what did the Black Panther Party do? Um, you know, because they had survival programs pending revolution. So they weren't just about taking up guns, you know, and I'd known Panthers much of my life, 20, 30 years of political organizing. I'd known a lot of Panthers and talked to them about these survival programs, which was to feed people, to give them education, sickle cell testing, um, to do all these things that you would consider to be service work or um, just meeting the basic needs so that people can get a leg up and then they can get strong and go on to do what they want to do and to make their lives meaningful. And then, and I was like, but as anarchists, how do I want to do this? We're not, we, we don't want to do, I don't want to form an organization that is like top down and we begin to tell things. So how do we build this with the communities? And I looked to the Zapatistas um, in Chiapas, Mexico, and to see what they had been doing for the last 25 years before Katrina came ashore. And so we started to do the same thing, which is to lead by asking. So we went into the communities and started asking these people, what is it that you need? How can we help you? So some people needed armed defense against the police and armed defense against the white militias. Some needed medical attention and some needed educational things. They needed their kids were not going back to schools because the schools weren't going to open. And this, this is all happening in real time and people are flooding in. And we begin to tell these stories and we begin to ask for more and more people to come. And we built on the networks that anarchists had already built across the United States and actually in internationally, but definitely in the United States at that point, where there's like street medics who had been doing, you know, like if you went to a protest and were getting pepper sprayed and stuff, they would deal with people like, you know, and they would help you to, to, you know, to deal with your ailments or whatever. So the street medic networks were all over the United States. We'd been building them for the last 20 years. And then there's, there was like legal teams and like all these different like decentralized food, not bombs, um, another network that feeds homeless people or feeds people, anybody who wants food, they provide access to food. And all of these little things that had been kind of these networks that had kind of been on their own. And we began to draw on those networks to call them in and say, hey man, bring your, if you've got access to resources, bring the fucking things in, let's do this. Mm -hmm. And so 
that's how we wanted to do it. But we didn't want to be just a service organization. There was always a liberatory framework to it, which is to create liberation for the communities that we are serving on their own terms. Even if I didn't want to be in that community, that's, it wasn't my, my decision to make, but I wanted to make sure that they got their needs, their needs met. So that led us to starting a first, uh, a first aid distribution clinic. Some street medics showed up and some people from Food Not Bombs, and they were willing to uh, start up the first aid station. And then we said, well, let's build a clinic. Could the, and then the question was, could a clinic become a hospital? Could we begin to build up from these infrastructures? So Food Nut Bombs, they're beginning to feed people. Could we get a permanent place where we can be able to feed lots and lots of people who are not going to have access to food for a long time? Um, you know, legal teams, because people are being evicted. Can we get legal, legal people to do with things? So this is all simultaneously. So unlike most NGOs or nonprofits or the way the government acts, we, we were able to be very nimble and very small, but have an amazing amount of resources come in in a very short amount of time and be able to do with them what we want because we we this is the uh, one of the liberatory pieces we didn't want to listen to what the government was saying i'm not saying like the cdc but i'm talking about law and order stuff because sure. that's all they were interested in trying to restore but we wanted to break the law for the higher moral law of trying to help people follow the ethics of what we were going to do to do it as safely as we can. But so it involved all these all these things, indie media that had been a network of media before the rise of corporate social media was a huge network. We were able to get people in to tell our stories with our voices, get people in those neighborhoods to tell their stories with their voices. And we just kept using it and building it. And we didn't just build one clinic. We built seven clinics. We built we had mobile clinics. We worked with indigenous communities to help them build their own. We um, we took we did search and rescue to communities uh, along the Gulf Coast that we were the first people to go into the fishing villages of these Vietnamese and, and indigenous communities that we were the first people to go in. Not because we were great saviors, because we were interested and we could do it. And we were willing to put our lives on the line to do these kinds of things. Again, not great heroics. It's just people, uh, just people doing what they think they should do. And so from that, we began, people started to come, and Common Ground started out with three people and ended up having about 30,000 people, I think, come through the first year. And during that time, we, we were we trying to use consensus and, and use these containers that we had to, to be liberatory inside while we were also being liberatory outside. And so some of the work that we ended up doing were like cleaning up dead dogs, cleaning up houses, you know, gutting houses, rebuilding houses. I mean, we did everything that you would want to do in, a, in civil society to help rebuild it from the beginning to the end. And it was uneven and it was erratic and it was difficult, but it was it, it opened this 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 crack in history that uh, just like the Zapatistas say, we open this crack in history to say, hey, could we open this up and do this more? Because everybody could see the failure of the government, but there was more to do than just protest against it. We we knew because it was immediate because people were dying or almost dying or they're in great care and need. So we, we needed to do that. And so that was kind of how Common Ground came together. And all of it wasn't my fucking idea. I mean, I'm not that fucking smart. <laughs> and um, but um but there was a lot, of, but I, but I, I started to come up with this container of ideas of these networks, and then started because of decades of experience with these people, started to call them in. And Malik Rahim, the one of the co-founders, a, a former Panther in New Orleans and a former Panther leader in New Orleans, he called his networks. And so you had all these different political tendencies working together under this common liberatory framework. Now, it, I, I could tell you all kinds of problems that it had. But we're not about to discuss that, but that's, but there, but that's where we start from. And so we wanted to build on one hand and resist exploitation and oppression on the other hand. The police were not going to kill people. The white militias were not going to kill people. We were going to stop them from doing that. We were not going to let um, profiteers try to exploit people. We were not going to we, we were, you know, we weren't going to let corporations exploit people. You know, th th there's all this resistance stuff, but we were building at the same time community gardens, food security, individual gardens, um, trying to get food to people, free schools. I mean, the list is very long. I wasn't even actually prepared to talk about the list. That list is long of things that pe that Common Ground volunteers brought. And yeah, that's a great overview of it, I think. And thank you for kind of summing that up. And I, I think what's amazing to me about the Common Ground Clinic, whenever I read about it, is is the scale that this grew to from, as you said, like three folks to something that was yeah. literally providing care to tens of thousands of people, which is like 
normally the kind of effort that we associate, that a lot of people, I would say, associate with kind of a state organization as opposed Mm -hmm. to something that's volunteer and activist-based. And if I could say, though, it was because because of the nobody expected it to happen, nobody, and the government response was so abysmal, but the government response is always abysmal, right? We always know that because it's large bureaucracies, the same with NGOs. So what happened is that once we we got a, a little foothold, even though we started out with $50, like money started to flow in and supplies to us because people were already sick of the mm-hmm. Red Cross. They were sick of that within the first days and weeks. So we were able to get access to resources to be able to do this, which doesn't happen under normal circumstances. So we raised $3 million in the first two years. Wow. I mean, that never fucking happens. I mean, we and we were keeping the money in a shoebox largely, you know, like, I mean, like, but, but, the, but, the, but it was nobody was profiting from it. Nobody was getting paid right. to do this. It was but we were, you know, but we were, but those were an, a phenomenal amount of resources that that groups, scrappy groups like this don't normally get. Yeah, and I think we'll want to talk about fundraising a little bit. Um, yeah. But I, I think kind of where I want to start is um, from the perspective of, you know, we've been trying to push people towards mutual aid opportunities. I think there's this kind of a massive, I've never seen anything like it, a national sort of um, mutual aid is like a mainstream topic of discussion right now in a way that it, it really hasn't been uh, since I can recall. Um, and we've been trying to push that on our show, and we've gotten a lot of folks who've gotten involved with things, but also a lot of folks who have been like, hey, I'm looking at the different lists people are passing around. There's nothing currently going on in my area. Maybe I live in a rural area or I live in you know a city that just doesn't have a lot of that going on. And what can I do? And so... Part of why we, I mean, the big part of why we brought you on today is is you have some experience starting something from the ground up, and I, I guess that's kind of where I wanna I wanna kick off with this next part of this is if somebody has an idea for how to help, what is your advice for starting to build an organization with which to to provide that aid? Well, hang on, let's let's back up just a second because there's a few there's a fundamental foundation that needs to be there. Sure. Uh, and, and, and and that's not about just how you organize. The logistics of organizing is the easy part, relatively, you know, like, but there's a few things that, one, that you have to recognize that the government is, is going to fail at every turn. They're yeah. just too, it's too big of a behemoth. And whether it's intentional or not, or all of that stuff, just recognize that the government, government is not one big entity. It's multiple agencies and multiple yeah. bureaucracies. I was going to say, I, I think that's, that's a really, that's a really important, important point to make. To make. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Especially yeah. people are sitting here waiting for the news to come down the pipeline of, of what aid package is going to be passed and how it's going to affect me personally and, and how much I can depend upon that. Let's just assume that you're, that you're, that you're not going to you're get, not gonna get what you need. Uh, and hopefully a little hope, bit, yeah. a little bit comes along but to help. But it's, instead of just sitting here waiting, I guess, what, what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah I, I think, think that's an important thing for people to keep in mind as we sort of look at, watch the national debate occur over the uh, the aid right. package that's eventually going to be put together by the government, in, you know, this debate over what it will be and how much money folks will get. And I think kind of what you're getting at, Scott, is that regardless of what winds up pushing through, it's not going to be enough uh, and there it's, will be it's problems. It's going to be uneven. Yeah. yeah. Yep. And the same with giant NGOs, too. Just recognize this and, and nonprofits, too. And many of them will make money on this. Red Cross is going to make billions on this again. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, so it's really important to know that government response will always be slow. It will always be bureaucratic. It will always be uneven. And most people will be left out of it at some yeah. level. And so, and so that's just a fundamental. That's not even like trying to down, you know, like knock the government down or anything. That's just the reality of it. That's the that is the reality of it. And once you once you're on that, then you don't have to worry about it anymore. Whatever, like you said, whatever comes in, great when that happens later. But right now we got to take care of things, right? So the second thing I think is really important is to not give in to fear. This is these are foundational <laughs> things because fear makes us all make bad decisions. And when we make bad decisions, we begin to do things that are really stupid. And um, fear is the biggest motivator for people to do stupid things like buy to- toilet paper. Right. And, and, yeah. and I'm not even, and you know, like I think it's, it's, it's humorous that they do that, but it's just because people are afraid and they want to do something. So I'm trying to be a little more kind to them instead of, not the people who are trying to sell it and, and make money on it and think, right, fuck right. those guys. 
But but the people who are genuinely like, I need to do something. I'm like, I guess wiping your butt is the biggest thing. But, you know, like it's you got to do something. So but just recognize that fear. I'm not saying don't be scared because I am terrified often. I, I was terrified in Katrina. I didn't want to be there. I didn't want to do those things. I wasn't I wasn't some on some fucking hero quest. I was just trying to do the best I could do in there, right. just like everybody else was. And so and 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 this is where fear gets really important is that when you in times like this, misinformation spreads really easily and far deeper and far more wide than you think it does from your friends and your family. You're going to get texts that you're like, they're shutting this down. They're locking that down. This thing's happening. It's 90% of it is the telephone game that's not true. Mm-hmm. And a case in point that just happened in my own life was that I got a text from New Mexico where I'm heading to tomorrow. And they're like, the whole state's going to be on lockdown. I'm like, it's one of the poorest states in the United States. And they're not going to be on lockdown because there's nobody to lock it down. There's no there is no military. There's no there's no police system to lock it down. And two, that doesn't even make sense. But all my friends there believed it because they had all got the text, the same text from the same person that was a telephone text. Right. And it turns out it was not true at all. It was not true. It just was like not even true. So so it's really important as and and because we're fighting the media, corporate media war. But with but that's very where where this one side of it just wants to make money on this and the other side wants to push their agenda. So there's it's hard to suss out misinformation. These are just yeah. foundations and it may be boring, but you got to fucking think about it. You got to mm-hmm. have critical thinking as the ground shifts underneath us and the yeah. time shifts. It's vital. It's vital. I think that we all have to. I've been trying to sit with my fear and my feelings of panic and to like process that, uh, metabolize it a bit, like deal with it, ask me what, it, ask myself bigger questions of where it's coming from so that I'm not uh, spreading that to other people. But also, all of us serve a vital role uh, in, in keeping each other informed. And we need to be very, very, very cautious about what it is that we share with people. If somebody asks me about something, like I've been getting a lot of questions, are are the military, is the military going to be rolling through the streets? And you're like, that is not a question that, that that is not a thing that we're dealing with right now. The, the, you know, calling in the National Guard does not mean that, you know, like, do we think that there's a reality where that happens someday? I, I can't really speak to that. But what I'm telling you right now, what's happening, you know what I mean? And just like, instead of letting our fear because then that then somebody will take that and turn it into something else when they talk about it to their parents so absolutely absolutely i agree 100 percent. well speaking of the government failing to deliver necessary <laughs> services and also speaking of disinformation and profiteering here's and <laughs> welcome to the worst year Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. (gasps) No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash news. That's LifeLock.com slash news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. 
With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. We are back and we're talking to Scott Crow. And uh, all right, so Scott, let's say I'm I'm a I'm an individual stuck out in the middle of nowhere, um, or out in the middle of some city where services are not getting to the people who need them. I see a need, and I want to I want to help. I want to build something to help. What what's your advice? You know, what, like what's your advice for kind of like step one? Well. Ask the people around you what they need and what you guys mm-hmm. and, and, and then assess the capacity of what you have to be able to do things. So if you're in a rural community uh, uh, that's very, dis, you know, like that's just spread up, spread apart, maybe it's just checking in on the elderly people and checking in and going like, hey, what's what's happening? Mm-hmm. Um, if you're more organized and you're already already part of, uh, you know, some kind of group or something, we'll get together and then figure out what what the community needs are and ask people. I mean, people will tell you that's all that's all, it's it seems like magic. But all you got to do is ask. And because then you'll get a list that you never thought of after Katrina. We just went to the, we, we gathered up the first 20 people in the community that we, we got together and said, what do you need? And you know what they said? Take out the trash. Can you get the rotting, stinking mm-hmm. garbage that nobody's picking up? Can mm-hmm. you take it away? And I was like, that's it? I mean, I thought it was going to be a <laughs> What's this? You know, like, I was like, all right, we can do that. So that's how we started. And then we're like, what's next? And we're like, well, this lady needs to be checked in on because she doesn't have her diabetes medicine. And we're like, okay, we'll make sure that we get some of that to her if we can. You know, so it's, it's like things like that. We just it just started. And that and we just but if you think about approaching this from a liberatory perspective, because you're not just trying yeah. to fill in the gaps where the government's failing, you actually want to you actually want to see if you can create autonomy for a future when something like the next disaster happens or the next crisis happens, right? Because what you, what you, when you're building mutual aid is a challenge to the dominant narratives at one. And then so far until Obama tweeted it the other day, that was super weird. I was like, Obama and mutual aid, those are weird words together. <laughs> um, but like you said, Robert, I mean, it's like getting, it's got to be mainstream. And so, but, but mainstreaming ideas also makes them lose their liberatory potential. So, and, and so in starting up, make sure you're not doubling up on stuff that people are already doing that is not needed. Also don't make, make sure it's not about just stockpiling things because that's not always needed. There's different stages of disasters. There's different kinds of disasters. Um, there's different kinds of crisis and every one of them is not one size fits all. They have there's a framing of, of the ideas and there's a framing of the, the way the mechanics work. And then you just have to pick the things that actually work for that for your needs at that moment. But when you start with those questions and then I think you just start doing it. So if it's just if it's starting to feed people, you start that way. But again, if you want to use a liberatory, you know, liberatory framework, you have dual power every time. You're creating, but you're also resisting. So if people are going to lose their homes because of, uh, you might do rent strikes, but at the same time, you want to make sure that people have safe housing. These That would be dual power at the same time. Free schools. If kids aren't able to go to school and, you know, you can gather to, to, to have us have a school. I'm not saying in this particular crisis at the moment, but just in general, you, you start a school while you're also cleaning out the school to get it ready so that kids can go back to their school. Those are dual power kinds of things. But you're thinking about all the time, every actions that we take, you're doing it not just for yourself. You're doing it for those around you, even if you don't know them, the vulnerable ones, whatever the vulnerability is, whether it's age, class, race, immigration status, immunosuppression, whatever that, whatever it is, you just have to find which of those things and begin to work from that. And then after that, the mechanics of it is really easy, especially right now, because we are in such a mild disaster. Right. Like, I mean, at this moment, we're not even near collapse, you know, and so so you can go to the store to buy toilet paper. You can get soap. You can buy these things. You can make food. All this stuff is still functioning in most places. So it's real simple things. If you want to start doing the larger things, you have to be willing. Like if you want to start clinics and if you want to 
um, do do things. The other liberatory piece is to break the law. You have to recognize that you're willing to break the law for the higher moral law. And are you willing to do that? And these are very serious questions you have to ask yourself. They make it very difficult. Every clinic that we opened, we were breaking the law to, to open the clinic. Every time Food Nut Bombs pushed the barricade out of the way, climbed under the barricade in the middle of the nights to feed people, they were willing to break the law under martial law, yeah. real martial law, not under, not under shelter and home, martial law with fucking full-on military and everything. And so you have to be willing to face that. The other thing is that every, if you, everything that you do and, and, and everything that, that you want to take on and doing all these things, you have to ask yourself, are you going to work with the government or government agencies and NGOs to do it? Or are you going to try to do it yourself? And I think that there's going to be hybridizations of that within that because all NGOs aren't shitty. They're just shitty because they're big. They're not, they're not necessarily shitty. I mean, uh, one of the first um, one of the first organizations, United Way, which I fucking hate them, gave us ten thousand dollars within days of, of, of Katrina. That's unprecedented. And they told with no strings attached, just do what you need to do with the money because we can see what you're doing. So and that wasn't just me. They didn't go to me, but to the organization. So so but these things are a lot more difficult to do. Uh, plug in, you know, like I'm sure you said you've been promoting all of these uh, these um, different mutual aid networks. Ask them for the resources of what to do. They have how to manuals, um, mm -hmm. mutual aid disaster relief um, that grew out of common ground and occupy and all these other things that um, they have. They actually have how to guides in there. They're not the only ones, but they they uh, they have them on actual practicalities of it. But it's not as hard as you think it is if you start doing it, because yeah. then you start to see the need. There's a couple of really important points you make in there that I want to hit on a little bit more. One of them is when you talk about a liberatory framework. And I, I think that um, what am, like what you're talking about, if I'm not mistaken, is this idea that um, you should not just be providing immediate aid to people. You should be kind of liberating them from their dependence on the system and from their dependence on, like, from the vulnerability that they're feeling in that moment in a long, a longer-term way. So you're not just handing someone food so that they have a meal. You're trying to provide them with long-term ways to meet those needs to where they're not just sort of waiting for it to be handed to them or, or like— like it's this idea of right now I think people feel there's a huge amount of helplessness that people are feeling right now because they're just kind of waiting for the federal government to step in and do something and they don't know if they're going to be able to stay in their homes and a piece of liberatory activism is like well okay what if we make it so that what what if we take action to make sure that they will have a roof over their head like activists in Los Angeles are doing right now occupying state-owned homes opening them up furnishing them and putting people inside them and saying, like, we're not going to wait to make sure the government is keeping people in their houses. We're going to provide houses. And we have to break the law to do that because it's that, you know, we have to break locks. We have to crack our way into these buildings. We got to use our bolt cutters. Um, so I, I, I think that's that's an important thing. And the other thing you've brought up. Yeah. The other thing you've brought up that's really I've spent a lot of time in war zones um, and. One thing I have noticed over those trips in Iraq and Syria and Ukraine is that almost no one has anything nice to say for the large international aid organizations who actually lives in those areas, the Red Cross, the United Nations, these these big organizations like the NGOs. Like if you want to hear NGOs get shit talked more than anywhere else in the world, go to a refugee camp or or, or go to a, a city that's but yeah. They are and they talk about how these people like roll up in big, fancy, up armored suburbans and how they stay at yeah. hotels and eat nice food. And it's the only aid organization that I have ever come across in my travels that 100 percent of the people in the affected areas had nothing like had purely positive things to talk about is the Free Burma Rangers, because it's they're, it, they're a medical collective. They are a small, nimble group. And they roll into an area and ask, like, what do you need? We know how to provide medical care. These are our capabilities. What do you need? How can we meet them? And they do it. Um, and I've never heard anyone in the in the areas where they were working have anything to say for them. But, like, I'm grateful they were there. They saved my life, my cousin's life, such and such. Um, and, yeah, so that that really hits home for me, this idea that you should be proactive about figuring out what people need as opposed to like trying to sit at home and be like what can i provide we'll go out and ask people what's necessary um and then try to build a framework for providing it and i i guess the next thing i'd kind of like to ask you about is 
so Common Ground expanded very rapidly to fulfill a wide variety of additional niches beyond sort of its 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 initial uh, 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 um, the initial motivations behind its founding. And I kind of am wondering what advice you have for people um, in when it comes to expanding and when it comes to to working with larger groups of people and sort of the different pitfalls that can come up. Because the more folks that get involved, the more money that gets involved, the more problems you're going to have. Like, right? That's one of the great pieces of lyric yeah, truth. More money, more problems. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about dealing with that. People internally yeah. stole money from us like crazy. People stole tools from us like crazy. You know, yeah, we'd yeah. buy $25,000 worth of tools and people internally would steal them. Um, so it was a mess. I mean, it was a, it was a, like I, I often describe it as a beautiful train wreck uh, internally. I mean, that's the truth of it because we didn't build, we didn't build it from before. So there's no relationships except for the few of us at the very core of it at the very beginning. Other than that, it was just whoever came in or they were more they were more distant as they were coming in. And so people brought in all their assumptions. They brought in all their privilege. They brought in all of these things to it. And it's definitely difficult to mitigate. We even um, we even hired um, uh, this nonprofit uh, to do um, anti-racist trainings for us every week. A local group, uh, the uh, this group that started the whole anti-racist movement in the United States as far as like doing trainings in the 1970s. And, um, you know, we always ran into conflict with people who didn't want to go to the trainings or wanted to wanted to do those things, even though they're largely white, largely middle class, largely young. And they were um, also working in communities fully outside of their that they had ever, ever been in before. Some of the poorest in the United States, some of the um, most marginalized in the whole in the whole country. And so I uh, so it's always difficult. There, there there is no magic panacea in that. And in fact, uh, my book is full of heartbreak about that. But one thing is that that I definitely want to be that I would take out of that is that um, I don't want to I'm not an activist. I don't consider myself an activist. I, I want liberation. I don't want to fucking make things just a little bit better. I want to alleviate suffering when and where I can. Right. And so I think a lot of activist mentality came in where it became identity politics um, would rule or anarchist politics or whatever, or communist politics, you know, like that would be kind of become the, the rule or they would try to have factionalism within the, within the, the organization. I, it was so loose. It was like a network. We actually just provided a kind of container of all these things and got resources to them and got people on the projects and stuff. And there was no, there was no central coordination. We tried, but it was like, you know, 30 people coordinating and come and go. And, we try to do this in real time while we're sick, you know, like we had staph infections and fucking bronchial things and fucking so much stress and so much trauma. Uh, we were trying to do this. So it was difficult. So if if I was going to just cut all of that off at the at before it happened, I would start organizing now, not under the crisis that we're in, but mm -hmm. but start organizing now for the future disasters that are going to happen. Because climate change is real, war is real, political. I mean, we're in a political, uh, you know, disaster at the moment, uh, it, as far as governments go in the United States. And so um, these, you know, like start building now for those futures. You know, like what is it you and your neighbors can do to build resilience now? Um, uh, you know, like I went, I went and spoke at uh, a food co-op in, in San Francisco to deal with uh, earthquakes uh, about six or seven years ago. And, you know, like they're trying to figure out how to work with their neighbors, like how they could build mutual aid with their neighbors, actually. And I thought that was a pretty good thing to think, like food security, not only emptying their shelves at some point or providing shelter, which is what the co-op would do. But what else could they what else could they provide their neighbors for now? Like food security, like is there is there a way that they could do community gardens, they could do individual gardens in this? This is, you know, this is downtown San Francisco. But but I'm saying like there was ideas that were floating around. That. How would they even be able to communicate? There's really four basic things. It's communication, education. Um, security and and uh, food. If I didn't already say food, healthcare, healthcare. So those are really the four major pieces of civil society. I'd say culture. I'd throw culture in there because we need culture too. We got to have music. We got to have beauty. We have to have. We have to have art. 
So there's stories that need to be told and there's things that there's beauty that needs to happen too. So those, those five things, if we work on those, you can build anything you want as long as you, in, in my analysis, with a liberatory framework, knowing that you're going to build on one hand and resist on the other hand. And also that you're, you're not just trying to fill in the gaps of the government, but if that's all you end up doing, that's what you ended up doing, you know, for in a particular crisis. Yeah. Katie, did you have something you wanted to ask next? Or, or Cody? I don't, this is uh, wonderful and so helpful and useful. I've talked to so many people who have the questions that you have answered um, because I think we're all in the sort of situation where, uh, like you've been talking about, where we have this drive to do something and there's no, like, there's no sign-up sheet. There's no, like you mentioned, the trash. Like, there's so many people I've talked to who are like, I would go and just help people take out the trash if I knew that that's what I could use my time and effort to do. Um, And yeah, giving people these tools to, to find out where they can place themselves is just so useful. And yeah. Yeah. And there's just so much like what I'm feeling a lot is um, a desire to help people, but also the depression and ennui that comes from not knowing where to start. And feeling especially in this specific crisis you're right when you say this isn't the same kind of a crisis where i mean we've got access to this to stores we can feed ourselves but i'm not allowed to touch or talk to anyone i'm not allowed to i mean i can talk like this but i'm not allowed to interact so we're all feeling so isolated and we're feeling um like it feels overwhelming in a way like not knowing where to start but then we can just look at, at the things that you guys have done people are doing right now mobilizing and, and building on infrastructures that they already had. Um, I, it's inspiring, and it is possible to start small. There is, in my neighborhood, uh, there's all these um, signs up. Some woman, a retired woman, I don't know who she is. She says, I'm retired. I, or maybe, Yeah, she probably would have the time anyway, even if she wasn't. But she describes herself to make herself seem like a non-threatening and says, like, if you need anything, let me know. I'm more building a group of people like I will go and and do the deliveries you let me know what you need and we're we're figuring it out and that it's so simple um and I think just in my small community here in my neighborhood of a way to feel take back some of the power that you feel yeah. you've lost through all of this I, I mean, I totally agree. And we need that because that's what mutual aid does. It doesn't, it puts it, it puts us back in the driver's seat. Also, it puts us back in the driver's seat, not from a fearful thing of prepping and I've got to get down in my shelter right. before shit, shit's gone. But like, yeah. hey man, how can we work together on this? And mm-hmm. you know, like maybe, maybe food, you know, maybe food security in, a, in an immediate disaster, not this one, but in a immediate right. disaster is like, um, instead of me stockpiling food, I, I stock, maybe me and my neighbors all stockpile food together in a house where we work right. together on it. And, and I'm not talking, I'm talking about my neighbors who I barely even talk to, you know, like yeah. I'm saying like people that you got to reach outside your own, especially those who are, who are more vulnerable shut-ins and people like that. I think it's really important. Um, and, and mutual aid, um, you know, you've talked, we've talked a lot about it and there's all kinds of it. And you'll see even that there's official mutual aid, you know, that has um, this brand of mutual aid that comes out of like um, EMTs and paramedics and stuff, and their mutual aid's a little different, but it's, uh, but the mutual aid I'm talking about is always from a liberatory approach. It challenges the dominant narratives. It also encourages cooperation and autonomy at the same time. And that, mm-hmm. and that gives us the power, puts us in the driving seat when we can do that. Because then it's not like, well, I just bought 500 rolls of toilet paper for myself. I'm like, wow, I actually got some things that are good for a bunch of people and mm-hmm. they got things for me and we can, we can ride this out together. And there's just a lot to that. And, you know, anecdotally, I saw it, and not in a Pollyanna way. I watched people with nothing give away their last resources to other people over and over again, Um, not knowing like if water was coming or food was coming, they would give it away. I didn't see that one time or two times or four times. I'm like, well, no, I saw it hundreds of times. And so I know that people that people will do that. And then you just got to, and then, but also mutual aid is take, making some hard, dirty decisions, not to let those assholes take over, um, who are afraid, who want to walk around with their guns and fucking try to threaten everybody because they're so scared. So it, 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 it involves, you know, multiple, multiple things with that now. One of the things that I've been trying to push to people, because obviously I've been talking about 
armed self-defense for a while as it sort of results or as it sort of regards the left. And so people started reaching out to me when the gun buy panic started. And, and I've been really trying to push people away from picking up AR-15s and AK-47s. And if you're going to get a gun, a 22 is a reasonable choice. And it also it, it, it improves your ability to provide, for example, meat for your community, right? Like if things get really bad in a future disaster or something, you could be hunting rabbit, squirrel. Like there's a variety of different small game you can put together. And that's a more realistic community self-defense scenario for a lot of people than needing to fight off a militia. Like that's exactly that's a more like you shoot situation. somebody for yeah. toilet paper. Yeah, yeah. Oh my yeah. God. Like I just shot those people for toilet paper, man. I feel good about myself. Yeah. And guns are yeah, interesting too because I get a lot of questions about guns. And you know, like I was gonna, I would say, depending on the scenario, uh, just in the framework, depending on the disaster, like in the top. 15 or 20 things i don't know if i would even if i would even put guns on that always it just depends on what you're like in this in this crisis obviously no at this stage no way no way like way more um the same with gold and cigarettes and things that people want to use as commodities i'm like <laughs> good for mad max life because i don't want any of that stuff I, you can you can you can shove that up your ass actually. Uh, all uh, that gold, I, I'm telling you. I'm like, I, I'm not trading my gardens for it. I'm not going to trade my food for it. And I'm not going to shoot you for it. That seems like a perfect time to interject and say, uh, we need to go to another ad break. You know, if yes, you've got gold, gold, if you've gold, got stuff that you want to barter for, <laughs> this is the time. Use it for these products and services. Welcome to the worst year ever. We'll get through it together or not. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. And we're back from those products and services. You guys probably have considerably less gold now. Yeah, I, I'm always amazed at people buying gold in disasters yeah. like this because I, I just can't think of one where gold will be particularly helpful. I can think of one where I can think of like I can imagine situations where people will want extra food or medical supplies or even ammunition, but I, I really have trouble imagining gold being useful in any disaster situation I can envision. Uh, no, I mean, maybe long-term crisis, you know, like you've you're sure. years and years into it, and you're just like doing barter economies, but you're, you're so far away from that. And that's, if that's the first thing you're going for, man, you're going to get hungry real fast, and people are going to yeah. fucking shun you. Because nobody wants your fucking gold. I can tell you nobody wants your gold. It's like, I, what is your gold even worth? It's like, how do I spend this? Like, if, if you were, like, reaching up to, like, if my boat was coming by in Katrina and you had gold, I'd be going, like, why? I wouldn't go, <laughs> get in. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so let's talk about uh, knowing when collapse oh, is going to happen. Can we yeah, mind? So, so yeah, collapse yeah, yeah. is always uneven. Everybody thinks that they're going to wake up like the movies and it's one day it's like everything is different. Mm -hmm. Well, it's usually not like that. 
uh, it fall, it's uneven in fits and starts. I'm not saying not localized. If you have a disaster, you know, like a, a environmental disaster or war, um, those are, you know, those those are very localized. But um, pandemics are very international. And so um, there's different stages of disaster and collapse. And um, one of the one of the ways one of my gauges, if, if we're if I'm ever worried, I'm never and I want, I want to be clear about this. I am never, ever, ever worried about martial law never yeah. worry yeah. about it. There's not enough of them. There is not enough of them anywhere except in localized areas. So I'm talking about National Guard, military of any kind, mm -hmm. police, law enforcement. There's just not enough of them and they don't fucking want to do it. So, um, but in, uh, the, but in collapse, the only, the main thing I look at is, is, is the grid infrastructure of, uh, power. So is, is, are we, do we have electricity? Is it still running? Do we have access to oil and gas? Um, if those things are going, then, then we're not in collapse. Once those things begin, now I don't mean in a localized way because they shut down power stations and gas stations during hurricanes and things like that. I'm talking about if you start to see power grids going down, that's when you would start having more concern. And I don't mean power grids going down because some storm happened and then, you know, our fire happened. Again, you start seeing it nationwide. That's when problems will start to arise because you're, you're dealing with transportation and food security and things like that, that just everything is predicated on oil. So that's a, that's an, a marquee. That said... There's really like in my analysis, there's three stages of disasters. The first, there's the immediate when you have to do things, rescue, search. Um, you're dealing with just immediate triage with death, things like that. That eventually gives way to stage two, which is about less active, but you're still doing stuff. You're still helping people because the uh, infrastructure hasn't returned always, especially in localized disasters. So you're you're dealing with things that maybe schools aren't open. So you're still dealing with things people have to get. Food. People still have to get things because maybe the restaurants aren't open. There's a bunch of mm -hmm. a bunch of things in there. And then the third is the longer part of disaster, which is the rebuilding part, which is like when you start to get into war situations that are just going on for years and years and years. All of these situations need mutual aid every time. And I think Rojava, like you mentioned before, is just such a, a great example, even with all the problems it has. I mean, again, trying to build something un while the disaster is already there is always incredibly difficult. It's yeah. always going to be. And if yes, we yes. Can Especially if that disaster has access to F-22s. <laughs> no, I mean, of course. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah. I mean, that's a yeah. given. It's war, right? Like, they're, yeah, they're, they're yeah, fucking yeah. Getting slaughtered, right? There's no, there's yeah. no. So, but they've still done amazing things there. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Under, under those, under those uh, auspices. Same with the Zapatistas. I think they're a really good example to like basically almost cut off from the world physically, but not internationally. I mean, they're totally, you know, they're still being able to, to provide these things. And I think that mutual aid just gives us an area to give autonomy and collective action and empowerment, um, even if it's not the answers. And, and if you put it in a liberatory framework, maybe good things out of the disaster will continue. And I'll, I will be honest, all the things that Common Ground did that were liberatory lost their liberatory potential eventually. Mm -hmm. They all did. The clinic you know, that we started as an outlaw clinic, the, the one of the, the first clinic, the, the clinic that still exists, the other six have closed, the, the mobile clinics have all closed. It um, is now, it's not liberatory, it still does good service work, but it's not a liberatory clinic anymore. It's just a clinic that can provide services to a, to a community that never had it. So is that a win? Or I would say- It became mainstream. mainstream. It became mainstream. That's totally true, right? Lost its edge, man. No more rebels. <laughs> Um, yeah, I know. Is that a win? I mean, it's it's the it's a win in that it's the good evolution of what it, it would end up there eventually if run everything successful, I suppose, and people pay attention to it. Right, but those but those people aren't willing to. And, and this is the thing: is like I think you like in my liberatory analysis, you have to be willing to break the law because laws are arbitrary, reactionary, bureaucratic, and selectively enforced. We all know that, right? So, but you have to be willing to break the law, even if it's something silly, like giving somebody food. You're like, all right, if I'm, if I would rather give them food than than follow the right. law. So, so yeah, that's where liberty us. And I think dealing with money is also a really tricky thing. I think that building it, because especially in activist subculture, 
um, where where people who come from active, with lots of resources, lots of middle class kids come into it, lots of middle class people, people with access to resources want to pretend they're downwardly mobile. And so they often turn back on those resources. And this is a problem that has been going on for ever since I've ever been doing political work. It's not just around disasters, but we need access to resources. So, yeah. uh, you know, whatever those resources are, we always need them. We need to use our privilege. Uh, it's the same thing, uh, breaking the law. Well, it's much easier for me to break the law. I'm white, middle class. I can get away with stuff for people that necessarily can't. And I might have access to more resources. It's not cool to pretend like I don't have them. I it, What's good is for me to tap into those resources and pay it forward. Yeah, it's so easy for me to break the law. It's unbelievably <laughs> easy for me to break the law because I'm, I'm, I've got that that tall white guy privilege, which makes it oh, yeah. very easy to like talk to police and insert myself in situations where police are involved and distract them. Um, it's it's a thing I've been able to do a number of times over the course of my life. And there's just this, um, I think there's a responsibility you have if you are able to interface with the law and with the state in a way to where they kind of, they, they, they're not necessarily on a back foot um, but they're less aggressive towards you and more willing to listen to you. Kind of have a responsibility to shove yourself in there when it can protect other people who uh, who don't benefit from that same attitude. Absolutely agree. So, uh, Cody, did you have any anything any mm. questions you wanted to get into here? Leave me alone, Robert. I will never do that, Cody. Don't you dare ask me the same question, Robert. <laughs> Back off. <laughs> No. <laughs> no, this has been incredibly thorough and uh, illuminating. Yeah. Thanks. I don't, I don't have the answers. I mean, that's the fucking truth oh. of it. I'm not sitting here on the top of the mountain going like, hey, man, this is all going to work. I'm with everybody else. I'm just trying to figure it out and come along. But had made quite a few mistakes along the way and have been in some s stupid situations that that where it was ne needed. And so I think that it's it, I, I have some practical experience, and I was willing to talk about it in in that overarching thing. And that's the only thing I think I bring to the to the table because I think all of all of you, and I think our, our I think when we talk to people who are reasonable, and that people all want to do this, you know, yeah, whether they're political. Or yeah, one of the one of the real lessons of any disaster, and there's actually been a significant amount of just academic scholarship on this, is that. More than anything else, people want to help each other. Most people, you know, you've got that you've got that minority of the population who are monsters in any given part of the world, but most people want to help the people around them in their community. And a big part of building systems of of mutual aid um, is giving people an opportunity to be nice to each other um, and to be helpful to each other. And I I think that. Uh, more than anything, building those systems is the is the uh, is the treatment for the real disease right now, which is fear. Like that's 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 going to do more damage to our society than the actual virus itself. And this is the vaccine for it. Is getting is doing shit and also taking while you do shit. By the way, I want to make sure I'm stating this. Take take proper sanitization and PPE precautions. Yes. Um, yes. <laughs> you know, it, Not it's a great idea. But yeah. But, yeah. but some people yeah. can rush, you know, some people can run to the fire and other people can stand nearby the fire, you know, and we need all of those people and we need, need people to stand back way back. And so you need to do that. We need all of those people working together, not individually. If you're, if you're still at a loss as to what you might do, one thing I might suggest is, you know, washing your hands first, using gloves, print out some sheets of paper that say, hello, my name is, this is an email address or phone number where you can contact me. Do you need something right now? Do you need something picked up? Are you low on something? Like, are you unable to leave your house? If so, reach out to me and I can try to help you and organize that stuff on a spreadsheet and see if you can help two or three people in your neighborhood and see where, where that leads you. Um, and again, always, you know, sanitize your hands before you handle the paper, you know, have have gloves on or at least like a trash bag around your hands. You know, be, be careful. Do take take the precautions that are necessary to keep your community safe. Um, but, you know, that's a way you can do what Scott was talking about. Ask people what they need and then attempt to provide it. It doesn't have to be you don't have to be building a clinic that 30,000 people volunteer at. Right. Like there, there are there are. Yeah. 
you know, smaller there are scale levels ahead of that. Yeah. Like the woman in my neighborhood, she put flyers up around the neighborhood and maybe somebody that sees that will be able to yeah. use that resource. You know, it's not 30,000 people. It's one woman. And, and we don't know, have to, and we don't have to judge it because everything doesn't right. have to be this fucking massive scale. Just let people do be what they want to do as long as they're trying to work together on it. You know, like I mean, if that's what that lady does and that that helps her, it's far better than you know standing in line to buy you know mountains of toilet paper because yeah. you feel so disempowered. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think also approaching this, I think one other piece I would throw into this is approach it with solidarity, not charity. And the re- mm-hmm. and there's a big distinction there. Solidarity means that we are in this together. And that that is different. We power share. Even if I have more resources and stuff, I want I'm if I do good, I want you to do good also. And that's far different than charity, which is like I'm just gonna help you. I don't even care. I care, but I don't care that much. You know, that's a band aid. Where solidarity is like we are in this together, and that's important because we yeah. are in this together. No, nobody's immune from it. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I I think one of the most important things to keep in mind is that like the goal of all of these things isn't isn't for like you to come in and provide things to other people and and be the savior. The goal is to build like when you're reaching out to your neighbors and figuring out what they need and trying to yeah. build ways to provide it, you're building resiliency within your neighborhood that also defends and liberates you. And like yeah. that's a critical component of it. Yeah. Yeah, we're uh, just about out of time here. But Scott, you said you had a couple of things that you could plug for um, us today for yourself, but here with us. <laughs> <laughs> for us. <laughs> and it's not self-promotion. I'm, I'm promoting no. these things because I'm trying to get them out for free. And I want people to know that. And it's my it's my part that I can do. Um, my first book, Black Flags and Windmills, uh, that came out from PM Press, is now available for free uh, in a digital e-reader. All you have to do is give them an email. And uh, I negotiated with them for quite a while because they are also struggling. As a small publisher, they are also struggling um, because I wanted to give my books away for free. I often do during these disaster times. And um, this is what we came up with. And they also put like 10 other really good books on that list. PMPress.org. Paul Mary press.org um you um and you can go there and you can get a free e-reader of black flags and windmills and and or choose another book um and i would recommend that also my uh my first book black flags and windmills is available in spanish from the arroboso papal collective collectiva uh i don't have their email address but they i there's print copies available for spanish speakers and digital copies also available for free to um spanish-speaking people for communities that would need those and then um, I started a, a small record label um, uh, last fall called Emergency Hearts based on this concept that I have called Emergency Hearts. And it's a music label. Uh, and then what we're doing with my, my small record label is that I have two titles that we are selling uh, and all the 100 percent of the proceeds goes to different groups. So one of them is Anthropocene Blues Revisited uh, is an EP that I just released with Televangel. And we're giving that one. Uh, you, you can buy it, and all 100% of the proceeds goes to um, MutualAidDisasterRelief.org, this great organization that grew out of Common Ground and Occupy and a bunch of organizations that works on this stuff. We talked about them earlier. Or uh, and there's another compilation called Retro Club's Classics, um, and if you buy that, because I live in Austin, Texas, it supports the Health Alliance for Austin Musicians, which helps musicians that don't have health insurance and are in crisis all the time. Uh, it doesn't just give them insurance. It actually gives them it actually provides medical support for them. Okay. And so all the proceeds from that and then all the other titles, I think we have like 60 titles on there. All the rest of them are free until April 30th um, for wow. anybody who just wants them. Download them, whatever it is. It's I mean, we're all just you got to have something to get you through. If you like electronic awesome. music, this is the place to do it. Well, uh, we're going to end the episode playing uh, some of your music. So if you guys like that, you can go check it out. Uh, In the meantime, you can check us out online at Worst Year Pod on Instagram and on Twitter. And Scott, what's your Twitter handle in case people want to find you online? At Scott uh, underscore Crow. Right. If you just do Scott Crow, you'll find (laughs) him. You'll find him. (laughs) Thank you so much for all of this uh, incredible information. I I think we've all learned a lot today. Thank you all for having me on. I really enjoyed the conversation. And thank all of you for listening. And please go out there and do something. Uh, yeah. 
do something. <laughs> do something. Resist, rebel, create, and build. Yes. There we go. Worst Year Ever is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy. And we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org.